It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 54, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest, Eric Schultz, owns and operates Steadfast Farm, a certified organic farm in the heart of a suburban community on the outskirts of Phoenix, Arizona. With three acres of vegetables, over six acres of orchard, and a parcel of livestock, Steadfast Farm is the neighborhood amenity in the Agrotopia development, an alternative to the golf courses and swimming pools that often anchor suburban developments. Steadfast Farm sells produce through restaurants in the neighborhood and around Phoenix, through a farm stand, at farmer's markets, and through a CSA. Farming in suburbia comes with its own challenges, as does farming in the desert southwest, and Eric fills us in on the ways he's made the most of both. We discuss how he's leveraged his neighborhood for marketing, how he manages irrigation, the evolution of Steadfast Farms' livestock rotation, and how he's moved away from the intensive mechanization he started with. Eric also gives us a good lesson on how to grow medjool dates which I thought was really cool. We also get into the details of the arrangement that Eric has with the developers and owners of the farmland and how the neighborhood has managed some of the complications of having an urban farm. I had a lot of fun connecting with Eric, and I hope you do too. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Eric Schultz, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a, it's a cloudy, cold, snowy day here in, in Wisconsin. How's How are things out there in Arizona? Oh, it's sunny and warm. I think we're probably about 75 right now. I think we're looking at highs in the mid-80s today, which is a little warm for this time of year, but you know, we roll with it. It's a rough life out yeah. there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll admit, I did just get back from a week in Arizona, uh, vacation down around Tucson, and, and uh, wow. Uh, just what a change a little a little different yeah i'm i'm actually originally from minnesota and so uh um whenever i go back to visit my family it's it it reminds me how how different where i live is and and so tell us a little bit about about steadfast farm and and about the climate that you're farming in sure uh well i mean steadfast farm um we are um essentially a, a farm or steadfast farm is my my farm business we operate uh, land in the center of a residential community in a suburb of Phoenix called uh, Gilbert, and uh, so it's basically your your traditional suburb community, and there just happens to be a small organic farm in the center. Um, farmland is about 11 acres, uh, four and a half uh, acres set aside for vegetables, and um, we have about six and a half acres of orchards. So when you say the the farm happens to be situated in the middle of the community. I had the impression that, that the Agrotopia community was kind of built up around the idea that there would be a farm at the center of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you the kind of the history of how it all came together. Um, yeah, it was definitely intentionally done. Um, and so this, the farmland itself was homestead in uh, 1920 um, by a Raber, the Raber family. And uh, they grew a bunch of traditional Arizona crops. Um, alfalfa, cotton, sugar beets, corn, wheat, um, all those kind of things. And uh, in the, let's see here, about 1960, uh, the Johnston family purchased the farm uh, that came from Northern California, uh, looking for a 
you know, a, a farm that they could manage as a family, not really having any employees. And they started to farm it the exact same way with, with just those kind of staple uh, commodity crops for Arizona. And uh, did that for a number of years. Um, Jim Johnson, who was the, the farmer, he had three sons, uh, Joe, Steve, and Paul. And uh, they um, helped out on the farm and um, went on for a number of years. Now, kind of fast forward to uh, the 90s, uh, mid-90s, development was kind of pushing out this way where this used to be a, a very rural area. Um, and so a lot of the farm um, farms in the area were selling off their land and uh, either retiring or moving farther out. And uh, they're essentially building homes on, on that land, your, uh, your urban sprawl, if you will. And uh, the Johnstons, kind of being spearheaded by the, the eldest son, Joe, um, he wanted to, uh, I guess, embrace the inevitable, but also kind of maintain, maintain the agricultural heritage, um, kind of leave more of a legacy. And so he kind of came up with this idea of uh, combining uh, a neighborhood with a working farm in the center. And so um, worked with different developers and, um, you know, Agritopia was born um, from that. And so his idea of trying to create the, the best possible community and agriculture and combining those two things and really trying to, to make a modern day village, if you will. And so, um, you know, they have 450 single family homes now in the neighborhood. Um, and uh, about a year and a half ago, they built an assisted living community, which is uh, full independent senior living all the way up to memory care, frail care. Um, so that's kind of integrated into the neighborhood. There's a school, um, a couple of restaurants, and then um, they're working on a couple of new projects um, that will create kind of a craftsman community, an artisan barn of um, different craftsmen doing their trades in our old Quonset Hut barn, and then um, a mixed-use project, which will add 250 um, apartments uh, up above uh, restaurants and other kind of food artisans. So, so that add another 250 residents. So um, a lot of people in a, a relatively small space. But all very intentionally designed. I know a lot of the, a lot of the urban farms, or I might classify it as a suburban farm yeah. where, where development has, has engulfed an, an existing agricultural operation. I think a lot of times those are just, they're just sort of built around this one. It sounds like was very intentionally preserved and with a neighborhood constructed a, around it to be focused on the farm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we are, the farm is not part of the neighborhood. We're, you know, separate entity, separate business. Um, and now the actual farmland is um, the, the Johnson family created the nonprofit to preserve that uh, that farmland and also kind of promote urban suburban farming uh, down the road as well. And so we're neighbors with the neighborhood. We're an amenity to the neighborhood, um, but yeah, we're just kind of uh, we're neighbors, if you will. And um, but the whole idea is basically, you know, instead of so many communities that maybe a golf course is the amenity or swimming pools and so on, um, you know, using a farm or orchards um, as um, as that amenity and kind of um, bringing the people, you know, bringing people together through food and reconnecting people with that is pretty amazing. You know, it was designed to have pathways walking around all the fields. And so we have a lot of interaction with the community um, that live there and people kind of come kind of the destination. And so 
tons of, of people kind of coming through and allows for a lot of conversations, um, which is pretty neat. How did you come to to the farm? Ah, that is a good question. Um, it's not by any direct path, actually. Um, my background is in landscape design, um, and I had uh, been working here in Phoenix um, and was actually friends with the Johnston family. And uh, Joe uh, asked me at, at one point if I would be interested in designing a community garden for them. And so that was kind of my first uh, interaction with the community. I've always known about it. I always kind of uh, been interested in, you know, in living there. It seemed like a cool thing, but hadn't really been really part of it. So designed this community garden uh, for for them, and it's for residents as well as anybody in the, the surrounding areas that wants to grow their own food. So we created a 43-plot, 400-square-foot plot, plot uh, uh, community garden. So everybody has their own little square, 20 by 20. We plumbed in water to them. They can do their own thing. So that's how I got started. And then I did some other design work for uh, some of these mixed-use projects um, that have been in, kind of in the planning stages for, I don't know, about seven years now. And so um, that, that goes back a ways. And um, kind of through that whole process, um, started to look more and more at the farmland because I kind of just felt like that was the the key to this community, kind of the anchor of it. And at the time, they didn't have a farmer, um, you know, at the um, back a ways, they used to just hire people and have farm managers and rent it for them. And, and so they didn't have anybody at the time. And so I decided that was interesting, kind of talked with Joe uh, about it and decided to, to kind of just jump jump in uh, with both feet and, and uh, just uh, become a become a farmer at that point, and without really ever doing it prior to that, with those kind of crazy thing to do, I suppose. How long ago was that? I started getting involved about seven years ago, I guess. But I've been farming here for about five. All right. So, relatively fresh. Are you are you living in the Agrotopia neighborhood? Yeah, we do. Um, um, part of our lease includes. Um, Two homes. Uh, we, my my wife and three children, we all live in a home here in the community, and then we have a home actually right next door to us um, that we have a couple employees, and we do a, an internship program, and so um, that's a place for them to live on site as well. And then you've got some livestock as well, right? Correct. Yeah, um, we we've tried a number of different animals over the the, the years. Uh, you know, one of my the things I like to do in the off season or on vacation is visit farms. And so um, a few years ago, I visited Polyface for kind of an intensive uh, weekend kind of uh, workshop and was super inspired about what, what, you know, what they were doing and tried to kind of figure out how we could apply some of those principles to uh, a suburban farm. And uh, so we started with uh, sheep and uh, chickens. And so we have, we have uh, a couple orchards. One of them is, uh, let's see here, uh, three acres. And um, so we started rotating sheep through through those uh, th- those orchards and then having chickens follow behind them. Um, and what I didn't realize is that sheep really enjoy eating citrus trees. And so um, they started just going to town, stripping all the leaves off the trees and that. And so we had to kind of adjust and pull them out of the orchard. But um, what we ended up doing is just leaving chickens 
uh, on a rotation in that orchard. And now we have ducks and we do turkeys. And uh, and so we, we rotate them through this orchard in different paddocks um, all the time. And it's created a really amazing kind of um, just this kind of closed loop system, um, the silver pasture of ecology and, and seeing kind of the synergy of, of the birds and um, utilizing the trees for shelter and protection and then fertilizing and they mow down the clover that we had planted in the on the ground around the trees and so that supplements a lot of their diet. And so, yeah, we, we have zero inputs in our orchard now, you know, where the, the birds are supplying everything they need. We don't have to mow in there anymore. And so it's created quite a cool, um, quite a cool system for us. And so we run 250 uh, layers through there. Um, and then we have about 60 ducks for eggs. Um, in the past, we've raised broilers, um, some uh, Freedom Rangers in there as well, but we've kind of gotten away from that, trying to simplify a little bit. And then we'll raise some some turkeys seasonally for some of our CSA customers. Beyond that, kind of passed over the, the sheep, but we did, we moved them around and we started using them in our our fallow fields, we'd plant our cover crops and let them graze on those uh, those cover crops in the off season. And as time went on, it just uh, got too hard to manage them. And so um, we went away from sheep and, and moved to pigs, and and pigs have been great. And so they're a little bit more flexible with uh, moving them around and uh, cooperate a little bit more in our in our setting. And so uh, we move our our pigs on on pasture. Um, in our fallow fields, um, you know, in between seasons and let them graze on, on those cover crops. And it's, it's created a quite a cool, uh, cool system. And then they're kind of pulling their weight, adding, adding to the fields and, and so on as well. I worked on Michael Abelman's farm out in uh, out at Fairview Gardens yeah. in in Santa Barbara. Sure. Um, and I mean, this has been, this has been ages and ages ago, um, when I was out there, he was actually having a lot of problems with the neighbors dealing with the livestock. One neighbor in particular who was just completely up in arms about the roosters that he had. And I'm wondering how your neighbors in a in a typical suburban development deal with the fact that, I mean, not only are you are you raising livestock, which has a tendency to stink, sure. um, but but you're also um, you're also raising things to kill them. Yeah, and yeah. and how people actually feel about that there, and if that's if that's been a source of any kind of any friction or. Yeah, I mean, let me, let me first say, like you mentioned, Michael Abelman and that, and you know his book and you know what he's done out there in California was kind of inspirational in some of the planning of this too. So I think you can maybe draw some parallels as as you think of your time there. But for for livestock, um, I mean, one of the the, the best thing that Joe did when he was kind of developing this whole thing is right into the CCNRs, the, the covenants for the community, that anybody that moves in, they have to sign off that they understand that they're moving next to a farm and that they have essentially no recourse for any anything we do. And so we're completely protected from dust and smells and noise and you name it. Um, as far as... Um, you know, how it's written. Now, do we get complaints from time to time? Of course, um, you know, we uh, we try not to have too many uh, roosters. Actually, we try to stay away from roosters for that reason. But being in our suburban setting, we have, um, 
people come by and are kind enough to donate chickens to us without asking us from time to time. So all of a sudden we, <laughs> we, we gain a rooster, which, you know, and we have one right now that just showed up one day and, um, you know, so that happens. We, you know, with the pigs, um, you know, it's funny you said that there's always one. Yeah, we have one resident that moves from the Midwest and uh, is just up in arms about us having uh, having some pigs here. And we move them twice a week. They're always moving, and uh, really, they don't smell because of how often they're getting moved and that. But I think just the, the, the principle of it. I don't know. She doesn't. She doesn't like it, and she's raised quite a, a ruckus for us but um you know that's that's the way it goes and she moved to the one community in arizona that has a farm on it so i, I, mean, I don't know what to say <laughs> yeah i don't imagine there's a whole lot of pigs in arizona no no i mean it used to be a, a kind of a bigger thing but i think a lot of that production has moved uh more in the midwest iowa and that and, and so on but yeah not, not too not too much going on as far as that goes the way that you market your produce is pretty tightly integrated with the community that you're a part of. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of chosen to take a path of trying, yeah, trying to feed our community, which is, you know, one of our, our, our goals is to, to, to feed um, not just Agritopia, but the surrounding neighbors, neighborhoods as well. Um, but uh, we've also at the same time, I want to be diversified in how we look at where that goes. And so we try to spread it out and not rely on any one source um, of support. And so we do, we have an on-site farm stand um, that's like a self-serve 24-hour. And so that's um, utilized a lot by the community. We do a Wednesday night farmer's market on property where we bring in a couple food trucks, which is always popular with the community. Um, and then, you know, kind of the idea is take, up, take the night off from cooking, come, you know, support one of these local food trucks and then pick up some, some groceries from us for the rest of the week. And so it's been a great way to kind of build community in there and have kind of that, uh, that place where everybody can gather um, in the community. So we do that. Um, you know, obviously we have the two restaurants on site. It's called The Coffee Shop. And then Joe's Farm Grill, which is kind of like this retro, futuristic kind of farm-to-table burger stand. So it's common food, but done more farm-to-table, if you will. And so a lot of our product goes to to those restaurants. Now, you know, they are menu-driven, so they're not uh, changing up their menus too much. They might have some specials, but, you know, they're going to sell certain things, you know, like salads year-round, whether we're growing lettuce at the time. But... As far as what we're um, what we're growing, they're they're very committed to buying as much of that seasonally from us as possible. Well, and I love how much they emphasize that on on their website that mm-hmm. they were they were they were really playing up their connection with with your farm. Sure. Yeah, and we're and we're always trying to improve and and dial that in more and look for ways that we can extend those seasons and and make that story as as tight as possible. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good relationship. Um, you know, I think some people will come to the restaurant and think that every, every ingredient that they're eating is grown on the farm. And of course that's not, um, true, but, um, you know, we try to educate as best we can and, and, and they're committed, um, to, to doing, you know, a a pretty good job at, at supporting us. Now, are you selling to other restaurants outside of the community as well? 
We do. Yeah, we're uh, we sell to roughly thirty restaurants and maybe. Uh, between 15 and 20 are, are super consistent. We have these other ones that come in um, sporadically. And so, yeah, we've really thought out um, what we feel are like some of the best restaurants in the kind of Phoenix Valley, you know, the ones that get it. Um, I've really tried to be selective in who I sell to and not because I think our produce is, you know, uh, deserves only the best, but because I, I feel like those relationships are so tough as it is. And so many restaurants are used to buying from distributors that have like this, this product list that is endless and so on. And so the last thing I want is to, to, to sell to people that don't understand the seasonality of what we're doing and be frustrated and then we're frustrated. And so uh, really thought that relationships with the chefs and these restaurants that are, that get it and are committed to doing um, you know, supporting local seasonal and, and do what we do. And so we've got some amazing restaurants in town that, um, you know, that really, uh, you know, really go out of their way. Now we know that it's, it's way easier to hire, you know, to call up the, the big distributor and have the 18 wheeler roll in and unload all that stuff. But the fact that they're willing to do the extra work, um, that's, that's important to them is, is great. And, um, yeah, so we, we sell, you know, one day a week I do deliveries. I do them always myself. Um, and I think that's important because I want to have the interaction with the chefs on a weekly basis and really, um, you know, they're not customers to me. It's really all about relationship and, and, and doing, um, you know, having them as, as friends and committed to, you know, supporting each other and that. And it's, it's the only way I know to do it, I suppose. And then you also extend that relationship to CSA members as well. Yeah, yeah. We, um, I think we currently have a, an 85 person CSA. Um, we were shooting for 75 and it went a little past our goal, which was great. And uh, we're just finishing up on our last week of our, our 16 week fall winter CSA. Um, this coming Saturday will be um, the, the start of our spring summer CSA, which is another 16 weeks. So we do 32 weeks of uh, CSA uh, through the uh, through the year, and then we'll we'll shut it down um, kind of middle of June when it's a variety gets us to get a little little light. And last thing you want is to give a bunch of uh, you know zucchini and cucumbers every week to, to people. It's a good way to lose CSA customers fast. So. We just decided it's best just to let them support at the market at that point until uh, fall rolls back around and we can have that, that variety again. It's really interesting to me that you just said you're you're wrapping up your fall winter CSA. You're rolling into your spring summer CSA. Um, the the season sounds completely backwards from what. Well, and of course, it's pleasant down there and it's cold as the Dickens up here right now. So can you tell us a little bit about how your season works in Arizona? Sure. Yeah, it, it is totally backwards. Um, so, I mean, we're kind of in like peak season right now. Um, you know, as it starts to cool off in fall, that's when we start planting our, what well, we consider our cool weather crops. So all of our greens and roots and um, all our brassicas and that are, are going in the ground at that point. And um, we've been, kind of going through that for the last few months, you know, and we do get cold, you know, we'll get into the, I mean, our lows can be in the, the low twenties for us. And so we have a huge temperature swing. So it could be, I don't know, 
70 degrees during the day and then drop into the 30s at night. So we have like this huge swing, which is can be challenging at times, but um, the winters are, are mild for the most part. Our, you know, our cold temperatures, those dips are only for, you know, maybe a couple hours and that starts to warm up again. And so we have a lot of, you know, flexibility or a lot of um, success growing kind of during those times. And so uh, we're, we're growing like crazy now. And then as we're transitioning, you know, we've got all of our uh, tomatoes and peppers and eggplants already potted up in the greenhouse, just waiting for that kind of that last frost or that risk of frost to go away. So we get them in the ground and then we'll start to transition. So we kind of split our season into two, that spring, summer, fall, winter, you know, as we go into spring, summer, there's that overlap of the two seasons of what we're growing, but we're going to be planting all of our, you know, squash and cucumbers and melons, and then all of our, our peppers, eggplants, uh, tomatoes and, and beans and that sort of thing. And so we'll, we'll have that twice a year where we have this overlap in season where it's just like so much growing, which is great. And then it'll start to warm up in those cool weather crops will start to, to bolt and not do as well. And, you know, we'll have some storage roots, you know, available for a while. And uh, then we'll just be in those, those summer crops. Um, and then we'll hit the peak of summer. And then even that gets a little challenging with, uh, you know, when you're hitting 110 degrees, um, you know, tomatoes are uh, not setting fruit anymore. So they're kind of going dormant. And so our, our variety goes way down. And then we'll wait for that. Um, those temps to cool down a little bit more in fall, and then those tomatoes will pick back right up, and we'll actually have a, a our best harvest on the tomatoes and peppers and eggplant going into fall from those same plants that were kind of over-summered, if you will. Um, and so kind of strange. And, yeah, I mean, even our orchards, everything's backwards. So we do uh, the citrus. Uh, we, we grow 18 varieties of citrus, and that's uh, – we're in peak season right now. It starts typically end of December – and we'll go through spring, and then we just finished pruning our peach trees, which are in full bloom. Apples are in full bloom, and we'll start picking peaches, uh, I'd say, kind of middle of April. So totally backwards for what most people see, and, um, you know, we're, we're starting to pollinate our, our date palms right now for the jewel dates, and then we'll harvest those in fall. So everything is kind of, kind of backwards, and which makes my life a little, you know, uh, a little crazy, you know, when when all the great conferences are happening in December, when everybody's winding down, and, and that's kind of like our our prime time. And I'm trying to get away to to, to visit, you know, visit these things, and uh, you know, and everybody's kind of hibernating for the winter, taking a breath, and we're just going like crazy. So it's 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 pretty different. Do you end up with a with a down season? Then is there is there actually some? I mean. You know, if you're in the upper Midwest, you know, December, January, unless you're unless you're crazy and growing stuff in the winter, um, you know, you get you do get some downtime. Do you get do you get a break? We we haven't uh, we haven't really taken a break yet in the last five years. We we grow year year round. Um, keeps employees, um, you know, employed through that time. And uh, you know, but our our what we have available is pretty pretty light during that July, August until really actually one of our goals this year, we've been doing a lot to kind of hopefully improve quality of life. And that, and one of the, one of those things is to maybe take off July and uh, take a, take a vacation and, 
you know, and then use August to kind of ramp back up into the getting ready for fall. But we can grow 12 months out of the year, and that's what we've been doing. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I'm envious of having a little bit of downtime and that and being able to plan. I kind of feel like we're, we're planting seedlings, you know, for the next season and during full production of, you know, the, the existing season and, and that. And so we're trying to fit the next season's workload on top of, you know, on our, uh, you know, our full production uh, workload. So it's, it gets to be a little much, but um, I guess we're also fortunate that we can grow um, as many months of the year as we can. So. Yeah. So do you end up, do you end up working really long hours uh, during the peak of your season or, or do you find that with, with the longer season, it lets you level things out and, and ease off of the intensity a little bit? Um, I mean, for, and for quite a, you know, a few years, we were working crazy hours, um, like all the time. And uh, I think my wife isn't on the call because she would, she'd have a lot to say about that. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, we, we've put in a lot of, a lot of hours and, you know, the last, I'd say year and a half, we've been really pushing to kind of recapture that quality of life and, and we're dialing in a lot of more efficiencies in what we do so that we can, um, uh, you know, regain that work kind of more manageable hours, you know, so I'm not, um, you know, this is, this is what I do and this is my farm. And so I, I'm fine with, or I can reconcile putting in the hours, but when you have employees too, um, it, it gets to kind of wear on them and I don't want to burn them out and mm-hmm. enjoy what they do. And so we've been really working hard at working kind of your, uh, seven to seven to five kind of hours right now. And, uh, JM Fortier, who's been on your show, you know, he's a friend of mine and, you know, I visited his farm last summer just to kind of see, and he's really kind of, he's worked really hard at, you know, talks about his book about managing, you know, that production so that their, their downtime um, is, is, you know, accounted for, I guess. And so that, that's, you know, that was always really inspiring for me. And so went up there and visited his farm for a week or so and, and had to see it for myself. And, uh, you know, it's it's the truth. So, you know, that was inspiring. So we've been working hard. I've been going through, you know, another one of your guests, uh, Ben Hartman, we've been going through the lean farm book as, as a, as you know, a team and kind of working through and and, uh, dialing in some of those principles as well. And so, uh, working real hard to get there, you know, like, like you said, I'm, pretty, pretty young in the farming game and have a lot to learn. And so, uh, you know, we, we rely on a lot of these, these guys have been doing it for a while and, and figure it out. And we're hoping that we can, uh, make that curve a little, little tighter. So. I think it's really great that there's a lot of models out there where farmers aren't just focused on how many hours they can put in, but they're actually really thinking about how few hours they can put in and, and really make things work, you know, trying to get some limitations set up on the system to try to, to push that better performance. Um, you know, and, and I, I mean, I know on our farm, one of the, one of the best things we did was, was when we reduced work hours and I still tended to work long hours, but I, I also recognized that my efficiency went down 
the longer I worked, you know, so there, there was kind of this point of diminishing returns. And it was even more so with the employees. Actually, we got just as much work out of people with eight hour days than we used to trying to put, have people put in 11 hour days. It was a, it was a really big deal when we made those, those changes. Yeah. It's been, yeah. I mean, right now we're, we're trying to keep it to that, you know, seven, seven thirty to four thirty or five. Right. And you know, it's, it's been working and, and our, our folks, work hard and they know we got to get this thing done by this time. And, you know, there's days that we go past that because, you know, we, we have to, we have to finish whatever we're working on. But um, yeah, since we've kind of started to create those, um, those guidelines for us, I guess, um, those restrictions, it's really um, allowed us to kind of to, to look at how we're doing things and, and try to improve upon those. So instead of, yeah, you know, working, and again, finding more land and growing more crops, we're we're just trying to dial in what we're doing here on the same land and make more money with, uh, you know, with hopefully not working as many hours. So, um, and you know, it's, it's so exciting to hear um, all these small scale farmers and the books being written and the articles being written about successes in that because there's been so many articles written about. Uh, how you can't make a living being a small scale farmer and that. And so I think um, it's, it's, it's good to hear that uh, it can be done, you know, and, uh, and you don't have to work, you know, a hundred hours a week to do it. So. Do you mind if we get into some of the economics of your farm? No, not, not at all. So on, you said about, three acres of, of actual vegetable production, four and a half acres of, of ground that's that's kind of devoted to that mm-hmm. that production. What kind of gross sales are you seeing off of that? We're, you know, we're still sticking with, um, you know, I say we have three acres in, of, in, in production. We've been rotating. I would say that probably most of the time we've had two. Um, but by the, by the summer, we're hoping to have, or the goal is to have all three in full production all the time. Um, and, you know, with some beds and, and, you know, or cover crop and what, whatnot at the time, but we, we get about a hundred thousand an acre, um, which is, seems to be kind of, the uh, the number that a lot of folks are, are, are seeing or shooting for in that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's what we're doing. And then we have the orchards on top of that, which are a nice revenue stream to kind of level out some of the seasons for us. And I don't know anything about about orchards and what kind of revenues would be normal from those. But you know, you said you said six and a half acres of orchard. What are you what are you seeing off of that? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, our orchards are pretty diversified as well. So we have eighteen varieties of citrus, and um, we go about that from two two ways. And you know, one being we're harvesting for retail and wholesale, bagging up citrus and so on, and selling that. Uh, but we also do you pick um, every Saturday during the season. And so um, people will come out, purchase different size bags, and then they'll go out, you know, go into the orchard with a map of where, you know, the different trees are and they can pick their own fruit. And so that's, that's been a great way to uh, allow somebody else to do the labor and, you know, again, connecting people with their food brings them into the orchard where we don't normally allow people just to walk through that allows them to go in there, see the chickens and ducks and so on up close and then pick their own fruit. Um, and so, 
Uh, we do that. Um, we, you know, we grow peaches and peaches are one of these, one of those crops, which for us, you know, it's such a, a quick season, you know, cause it's warming up. And so we have like a two to three week window where like those things are, you know, peak ripeness and, you know, so juicy and ready to fall off the tree kind of a thing. And the last thing I really want to do is send out, um, the crew, pick a bunch of peaches, bring them to market by the time they get there because we're picking, you know, when they're fully ripe, they're soft and, and so on. And so uh, we do you pick on those two and, you know, we'll do, I don't know, uh, over those, you know, few, two, three weeks, let's say, Oh, I don't know, $6,000 in you pick sales over those few weeks, which is a nice little bump, um, for, uh, you know, the citrus you pick is, is stretching out over a number of weeks and between that. Um, so we do, I'd say maybe, let's say 40, 50 grand in, in orchard sales each year. Okay. Um, and then, but our biggest cash crop, um, which is technically, I guess, part of our orchard too, is our medjool dates. And um, that's a whole different animal. Um, I think if I were to pack up and move somewhere else and start a new farm, I probably definitely wouldn't have medjool dates, but we have them. And, they're amazing. They're delicious. And, um, you know, they're a great cash crop. So we have 23 date palms, um, super labor intensive. Um, but out of those 23 date palms, depending on the, you know, the, the cycle and seasons that we'll get between three and 5,000 pounds of dates, uh, off of those. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. And they're dried fruit. They store so well. So we'll, we have them, you know, we harvest them in September. We still have, uh, gosh, hundreds and hundreds of pounds left over, you know, so we, we, pro- we don't really have to do any processing. So we'll, um, clean them up a little bit and package them, um, as, as we need them. And it's a great way to kind of keep, you know, having some consistency to, uh, to that. And so, you know, when you're talking, well, I don't know, seven, seven to $8 a pound for, for a date, it's a, it's a great, it's a great cash crop. Um, but also say that the most labor intensive thing we do. And it happens at the peak of when everything else is going on. So it's a huge like strain on everybody to have to fit that into um, what we're doing. You know, uh, we can pollinate everything because dates are insect, pol- or I'm sorry, they're wind pollinated, not insect pollinated. And so we have to go up there and grab those pollen branches off the males and then wait for the female branches to come out. And we only have a three day window once those pop out to, to pollinate them to get, you know, good pollination. So, so are you guys out there like rubbing branches of date flowers together? Uh, well, that's one way. Yeah, we we take the 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 male, you know, the flowers, the pollen, and we kind of we let them dry, and then we kind of shake it and extract that, and then we um, put it in like a little squeeze bottle, if you will, and we just kind of dust that onto the the fruiting branches when they come out. Okay. Yeah, but it's it's crazy. We spend probably ten to twelve man hours in each palm tree. Uh, you know, on ladders or on a lift and that. So it's a lot of, a lot of time. And so, um, but again, it it's definitely has its benefits as well. How tall is a date palm? Um, you know, ours right now are about between, let's see, some of them are probably, well, our working height's about 18 feet. Um, the males are taller. Their working height's about 25. And if you probably, measured to the top of the fronds, it's probably another 10 feet at least. So pretty tall. Um, and so that's, uh, we just 
I designed a, a lift this last season, which is like a U-shaped catwalk, if you will, that we can put on the, the front of a tractor on some forks and lift it up. And then we just climb up there into a lad with a ladder. Because we used to stand on ladders, you know, and you're thinning dates, you know, thinning fruit to kind of give more space for three hours standing on a ladder. And that's a recipe for disaster and pretty miserable. And so this, this lift allows us to kind of walk around the entire tree um, comfortably, you know, and, and not worry about people falling out of uh, off ladders and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So with with the dates, I mean, what else is involved besides the pollination and the and the harvest? Sure. Yeah, I can walk you through it. Um, it's it's a long, you know, long season. We start pollinating about this time of year. So basically, with this warm weather, it's kind of is accelerating things on. Uh, on us, so we're watching for those those shoots coming out of the center of the males, which are going to have those po- those pollen branches. And so once those come out, we'll cut those down again, let, them, let the flowers dry, shake out that pollen, um, and then we'll kind of be watching, waiting for those female flowers to pop out. And then again, we have about three days once we see one. So it's kind of a everyday thing where somebody goes out, kind of makes the rounds and looks for those fruiting branches. And once they're out, we, we go up in the, in the ladder, dust the, the pollen on them. And then we tie like a little piece of twine around that cluster, which the arm of the date, uh, the fruiting branch is a bunch of like strings, if you will. And there's fruit, little nodes all the way down each string that the fruit grows on. And uh, so once we pollinate that whole branch with all those strings, we'll kind of tie them together with a piece of twine on a little slip knot. So it keeps much pollen collected um, as, as best as possible. And then as they grow, it'll just, that twine will slide off. So once we finish pollinating, we just kind of wait and we kind of wait and we start seeing that fruit set and um, those dates starting to grow on there. And so um, I'd say a couple months after initial pollination, we'll go up and we'll thin the fruit and we go up and basically like, you know, a lot of orchard crops, you get, to, you know, you're thinning to allow room for the fruit to get bigger and also concentrate those sugars. And so we'll go up and we'll thin out about 80% of the fruit just to allow um, the dates to get to the, that little jumbo, you know, large size. And so um, spend a lot of time just plucking off fruit on those, uh, on those date strings. And so we do that for, it takes two, three weeks for uh, us to get through all those trees um, doing that. And then again, it's kind of another break. And then let's say, oh, I don't know, July, um, fruit is starting to starting to get some color going from green to yellow. And at that point, they're much more attractive to the birds and the birds want to start kind of pecking at them. And that's so we, we take cloth bags um, and we put a cloth bag over each cluster of dates uh, and kind of tie those over. And that protects um, the dates from the birds getting at and because they're sealed on the bottom, but also down the road when they heart, they uh, finish ripening, it'll collect any that fall off. So we do that, and then we wait until the beginning of fall, and they kind of get that, that nice dark uh, brown color to them, reddish. And then we'll um, go up there, and it takes about three harvests because the medjool dates don't all harvest evenly at one. So we'll go up and take some of the fruit off of, you know, the, the branches and we'll put the bags back on and then we'll come back a couple more times. And, and that's the process. So it's kind of like you're 
February, March, all the way to September, you know, different waves of intense workload that, um, again, they're, they're delicious. So, and our customers love them. So, and it's a great, you know, for our CSA and trying to balance that. And it's nice to have that, uh, as your, your fail safe, if you're kind of light on some items, you know, you throw a pound of dates in there that always makes everything better. So, <laughs> that's great. Thanks for walking us through that. That's really, really interesting. And I think completely outside of the experience that most of us have with, with growing crops. So sure. very cool. Uh, what I'd like to do now is take a break and get a word from our sponsors. And then I want to come back. And, and when we get back, I'm, I'm going to ask you how many rattlesnakes you've had out in your fields. Sounds good. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you buy potting mix from Vermont Compost Company, you're not just buying an input. You're joining a community of growers across the United States. And like the best inputs and the best communities, you're getting a product and a community that really have your back. Vermont Compost Company has been committed to helping farmers make money by growing great transplants for over 20 years. If you've got questions or need help with your transplants, whether you've got questions about watering, temperatures, troubleshooting, growing conundrums, you can call them up and you can actually talk to Carl Hammer, the founder and owner of the company. And Carl knows his stuff. And about that community, Vermont Compost keeps track of who gets every batch of potting soil they create. And because Vermont Compost deals directly with growers without going through a distributor, they know who's using their potting soils and how they're using them. Vermont Compost Company knows, like I do, that organic growers are some of the best people on the planet. They're proud to be part of that community. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using them thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought one for ourselves. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with Eric Schultz from Steadfast Farm, which is also known as the farm at Agritopia in, in the outskirts of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so, Eric, Arizona, it's the desert. Um, do you guys get rattlesnakes in the field? <laughs> we actually don't get rattlesnakes in the field. Uh, we get a few snakes, but not not rattlesnakes. Uh, the biggest thing we have to watch out for um, would be scorpions and black widows. Um, we tend to have a lot of those around and um, have avoided the black widow bite so far. And so I'll take scorpion stings over that any day. But yeah, with they love to, to hide in the tomato plants and that sort of thing. So we have to uh, watch where we put our hands. But no, no rattlesnakes, which um, I'm okay with. Not at least not at the farm. We don't have to go far to find a rattlesnake if we want to. But and Phoenix, I mean, you guys are, I mean, you're full on desert, right? You're surrounded by saguaro cactuses and and uh, and sand. We are, yeah, yeah, we are definitely in the the Phoenix Valley, which is is desert, and um, 
got a lot of fans. Uh, our soil is more or less 100% clay, um, which is kind of an interesting uh, soil to work with. Um, but there's actually some advantages to um, our climate and having that clay being heavier and you know retaining water longer and that sort of thing. So we've kind of learned how to manage and work around that, uh, you know, in, in what we're doing. So, I mean, plants are made out of water. So tell us a little bit about how you're managing the irrigation then out there in the, in the desert. Sure. Well, you know, there's a lot, I hear a lot from different farmers, you know, when they hear that we're in Arizona, there's always like, Oh, you know, you're in the drought. I think we kind of get lumped into the same uh, situation that maybe California is in, which we're definitely not uh, in a severe of a situation. We're actually in a decent place, especially for, um, for being in the desert. Um, and, you know, I think the municipalities have done a pretty good job trying to be responsible um, for a while now. And so um, we're not in, as, you know, severe. We are in the desert, and so we need to – we practice as if we were in a drought. So we're trying to be pretty – um, conscious of how we use water and always looking for ways to save water and, and, and utilize that uh, you know, very valuable resource. So we have our own well on site um, that we use for irrigating you know, our vegetables and, and such. And um, we, it's, a, it's a pretty strong well. We've actually been fortunate enough to see our water table rise over the last uh, years. And um, so that's good. You know, one of the, the the tricky things with our well or our groundwater is it's super high in salt, uh, and so we can't do any sort of top watering of the crops. Um, and so all of our seedlings in the greenhouses are bottom watered with trays, um, and then we use drip irrigation for all of our um, fields, which again is is more efficient as far as the use of water. Um, but, you know, using sprinklers, that wouldn't be an option anyway. It's just because we'd be kind of burning some of those leaves if we were constantly watering them from above. Wow. That's that's an interesting challenge. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. I mean, if you look at our soil, see kind of some, even that, that salt starts to crust over time. And so um, we try to break that up a lot with, with compost and um you know, the, the rain come in and help flush that out some, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Now with the drip irrigation, are you just laying that on top of the soil or is this something that you're, I mean, since you're dealing with that so much and so consistently, are you going through the effort to bury that? We, uh, last year we buried it and, um, there was definitely some benefit to that, but there's a lot of, it's kind of like it was a 50, 50, you know, when it was time to, fork carrots and that sort of thing. We were springing leaks left and right. And so, um, but it's nice when you're cutting, you know, cut greens and not having to worry about cutting those lines and, and that. So we've actually, this year, we've just gone to laying those on the surface and calling it a day. And then when we harvest, we pull the lines off and then put them back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, we just decided it probably wasn't worth the effort uh, for what we we're doing. So they're just right on, right on the surface. Anything that you found that, that works particularly well for drip irrigation management? I mean, I, I hated dealing with, with drip. I have a real bias against that stuff because sure. it's just it's such a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're always you're fussing with it. You turn it off. It all contracts and, and wrinkles up. And then you turn it on and you have to go straighten it all back out again. You got to move it out of the way when you want to cultivate. It's just a 
I don't know. I hate the stuff. Yeah, no, it's definitely can be frustrating at times. No, I don't know that we have done anything too revolutionary, but uh, I mean, we have played with using uh, wooden stakes at the end of each bed, and then we string a, a bungee cord across um, between those stakes, and then we use a piece of twine and tie the end of the drip line to that uh, bungee cord. And so that, you know, with our, our temperature swings, we we would always see a huge, like a four-foot, like, contraction, expanded contraction of those drip lines with the cold and warm weather. And so that helped us to kind of keep the drip lines a little straighter and a little tighter on the beds. And so allow that bungee cord to kind of absorb that, that flex and then pull everything back. So that's worked out pretty well. But if I, if I'm going to be totally honest, we didn't even, I, I skipped that step this year. We've always done it. And then this year I didn't just, uh, I don't know, I got lazy, I suppose. But still happy with the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I guess that's strategically applied laziness. I think that's worth yeah, always you. worth thinking about. <laughs> so um, when we were on break, we were talking just a little bit about your your uh, production methods. And, and, you know, you said you guys actually started off with a lot of tractors and equipment, but have, have kind of migrated away from that. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, when I took over the farming operations, you know, originally as their farm manager and then after a couple of years with the leasing uh, the farm from the family, um, you know, they had all this beautiful equipment that they had purchased over the years to, to do this, um, this style of farming. And so, um, you know, the Joe Johnston, uh, who's uh, kind of the one to put this all together, um, the farm, you know, vision and all that, he kind of has an affinity for uh, all things Italian. And so he's got this beautiful Italian spader and bed shaper and um, uh, Peruso flail mower for the back and all sorts of really nice things. And so when I got here, I just felt like, you know, of course I have to use it. because I mean, I have all this great equipment and why wouldn't I use it? That sort of thing. And so did that for a while. And, uh, really what I found is uh, a couple things. One, um, the way the farm is laid out, and you know, if you look at any kind of overhead maps, the fields are, um, there's like three fields in there. Um, and they're, they, they're kind of cut through with walking paths for people and they all have kind of two rail fences around them. And so it was always so challenging to to do those tractor turns and they have to drive all the way around the entire field again to come back and spent so much time doing that and then we just you know just the old field in and and then start over the next season and it was just a lot of work and just really hated having to leave all those margins for the tractor turns and and that um you know to, to be able to manage the land that i had to work with and so um we, you know, we always have had a, a BCS on on site, and so um, we use it for some applications. But um, you know, if we talk about the the JM, the method, or you know, a lot of, uh, of the you know what came from a lot of the Elliott Coleman methods and that sort of thing. Um, you know, that was inspiring, and so uh, started to kind of slowly add different um, components of some of those techniques, but kind of being skeptical, and then finally got to the point where it was all it was all working for us and so this last year we didn't do any uh didn't use any tractors in the field just our bcs and um and yeah couldn't be happier we're able to turn over beds so much faster and manage um some of the soil challenges uh way better 
So we've kind of gone away from the big, you know, the big equipment and that, even though it's sitting here and I'm sure, you know, they'll probably sell it in time uh, since we're not using it, but um, it's, yeah, it's just appropriate, you know, tools and technology for what we're doing. And um, I think um, not just from, efficiencies, but also for the bottom line for a small farmer. I mean, that's one of the things I uh, preach when I talk to other farmers is, you know, we don't have to have, you know, the, the $50,000 tractor and all the fancy implements and that, you know, if, if there's things that are low tech and that, that do the, do the job and we can uh, put some money in the bank, you know, or not be in debt. I mean, that's, that's the way, that's the way I see it. We should go. And I think we'll have a lot more successful small scale farmers if we kind of take that approach. Well, I think it's really interesting that, that even with that equipment sitting around that, you know, as, as part of your lease arrangement that you've, you've yep. moved away from that. Cause I think most people think about heading in that direction and uh, heading in the other direction is not, that's not the normal path. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's it was, it was, it was kind of a hard thing for me to get over honestly, because I felt like this obligation because I was so fortunate to go into a situation that had all this equipment. So like, I just I had to use it. And so finally, you know, I got over that and couldn't be happier, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we'll use a tractor, you know, has a bucket and on the front, you know, front loader and that. And so we can use that from time to time for different things. But for the most part, we don't, we don't have to rely on that. And, um, it's, it's been great. And then, you know, I can also cross train, um, some of my staff a little bit better too. And, um, I think they're, they're learning more by being able to do more hands-on with, um, that side of things too, where before I would do all the, the tractor work myself and, you know, and, and nobody else or I never trusted anybody else to, to, to shape beds and that sort of thing. And so to be able to now bring folks in and, and train them and teach them so that when they, go on and do their own thing um, if they're that much farther ahead, I think is uh, helpful. Tell us a little bit about your, your staffing arrangement on the farm. It's, it's you and it sounds like your wife works on the farm as well. Yeah. My wife, Yvonne, uh, she, uh, she works a little bit, you know, in the field, but I'd say, you know, what she's, she spends most of her time kind of doing the, the, the background stuff, um, you know, from paying the bills and payroll and, all that. We also have three kids. And so that keeps her pretty busy. Um, and so she, she does more of, uh, kind of those support roles and unload things off of my, uh, my plate so I can focus on being outdoors, uh, and, and, and doing, you know, doing the things in the field where I need to be. And so that's where she focuses. Um, and then I have, uh, two employees currently that are full time, and um, they all actually started out as interns on our farm and um, were, you know, were great, solid folks and really driven and uh, worked out that we, you know, over time, at different times, they, we had offered, you know, openings in that. And so uh, we have a great staff of two guys right now and that we do an internship program. Um, we take on two interns at a time for three months. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, there'd be myself out in the field, uh, my wife kind of doing the background stuff. And then we have the two employees that split up responsibilities on the farm and then two interns at a time. And those two interns split up with one with each employee and then they switch every two weeks. So they're uh, also working, you know, doing all the different tasks. 
Wow, that I'm I'm surprised you're getting by with that few people. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I don't know. It's, um, it's it's been kind of crazy. Um, you know, we at one point, you know, we had as many as I don't know, ten folks working. You know, between interns and employees um, working on the farm, and then I just turned into I felt like I was just a manager of people at that point, and not really where I wanted to be. And so um, we kind of started to pull, you know, pull things back and kind of relook at how we were doing things. And again, just trying to dial in a lot of those efficiencies um, so that we can do things with less people and, um, you know, be able to support, you know, my family and also two full-time people, you know, year round on a farm um, that's relatively small acreage, I think is, uh, we, we feel pretty good about that and so we're looking at hiring a, a third person um you know as we g- get more into the season i think we're we're realizing that um you know long term we need to to do that and and dial in our again our efficiency so that we can uh afford afford that um uh, so but yeah that's the goal is not to have more than three employees besides my wife and uh, myself and then two interns at a at a time and so um, and I think we'll kind of keep production um, management, you know, based on that. I want to talk. I want to talk just a little bit here at the at the end of the at the end of our conversation about getting started with with Agritopia and how important was having the material support from the owners uh, when you got started. You know, it, it sounds like when when you came in, there was a lease arrangement, and of course, somebody who was who was wanting somebody like you to come in and run a farm like the farm that you're running and had kind of laid the foundation, not just in terms of, of setting aside ground, but also in terms of making the equipment available. Um, how important was that to your farm success? I mean, I think it was huge from, especially from my background, um, having only gardened on my own um, and having, you know, a background in landscape design and that. So I understood plants, but not farming by any means. And so to come in knowing more or less nothing and, uh, and having to, you know, make something, you know, make things grow and, you know, figure that all out. I mean, it was super important. And so uh, that really took off a lot of pressure. And I was very fortunate in that, um, from that perspective um, to, to, you know, how that all rolled out. So, yeah, when I first started, you know, we, they had other farmers come through and it's a, it's a tough farm. And so they've kind of gone through several farmers prior to me and not really ever found a a good fit. And it's just so many different um, crops and, and so on. And then, and then the scale at which, and, you know, having to wear so many different hats, um, as a farmer, you know, they just always struggled. And so, um, they were committed, you know, that's what's really different about this project is the family. Um, they're not just developers that are creating a neighborhood with a farm and then moving on to the next project. They, this is kind of their legacy, if you will, you know, they have four generations living here in the neighborhood. And so the farm is kind of the, the show, you know, that, that showpiece of the neighborhood. And so, they really wanted to work and they were committed to doing that and, and helping me to be successful. And so, you know, when I came on, I was their employee, which again, took off a lot of the pressure. 
um, and allowed me to run it as my own business, if you will, but having that kind of protection under uh, under them, um, and then to slowly transition to kind of a, a hybrid lease and then kind of just a, a straight lease um, over time has been super helpful. And you know, I I uh, I mean, I'm I'm so so fortunate, really. To, to be able to do it that way because uh, most most people are not and it's a, it's a, it's a, it can be brutal I suppose and do you anticipate keeping steadfast farm at agrotopia I mean is this a I mean obviously a, any farms a long-term engagement but is this is this where you see the farm staying forever that's that's a great question and it's kind of timely because we're kind of in that uh, we're in the, that phase of, of, of the farm right now, kind of figuring that out. And so uh, we, we definitely, um, going into this next year, have considered and looked at um, if we wanted to kind of move operation and buy our own land and, and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, we have put a lot into kind of uh, making this farm successful. And, and there's a lot of these different elements and components coming in, new restaurants and so on, restaurants that we already sell to and that want to be on property where we can actually grow food and deliver it to them, you know, 15 minutes out of the field, you know, and so there's all these interesting new components of the of the, the project coming in, and so we need to, to to walk away right when some of these things are happening too. So, um, you know, our, our challenges, um, you know, we're in suburbia. We're kind of we kind of joke that we're in the fishbowl, if you will, working in the fields and people are walking around and you know watching us and um, which is kind of cool, but at the same time, I think we can kind of take that uh, for granted and get a little annoyed over time and, and just wanting to be out uh, a little bit more rural and not have to deal with some of those things. And uh, But at the same time, I think we have to keep reminding ourselves that we're in a super fortunate area and we have a lot of traffic and build some customers that come with that. And so we're, we're, we are definitely fortunate. So I would say that, I don't know that I'll be here forever, but... Uh, there's definitely a chance and um, I'd like to, I'd like to stick around and, and kind of keep, keep working on this project and dialing it in um, because it is not just a showpiece for the farm in the sense like it's uh, kind of just a fake attraction and that is a working farm and, and, and it's a great example, I think, because it is so public of uh, showing what can happen in suburbia and uh, a couple of people have kind of coined me the suburban farmer, which at first I was kind of, uh, I don't know, rub me the wrong way because I, I don't. I think suburbia is not uh, a space that most people want to be identified with. I suppose, but uh, I suppose there is a ton of uh, uh, there's so much you know suburban uh, landscape out there, and um, there's so much potential to grow food and kind of close those gaps and 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 bring people closer to their their food sources. So. Uh, I'm learning that maybe I'll, I'll embrace that and it's not such a bad thing. That's really great. I, I love that perspective and, and, and kind of, well, just that idea of embracing where you are and what it is, you know, you're farming in suburbia and that's, that's pretty awesome. I mean, yeah. I think that brings you a, a ton of, it sounds like it brings you a ton of advantages and, and, uh, and things that, like you say, I think it's easy to take that stuff for granted anywhere you are, but really appreciating what you've got in your location and figuring out how to make the most of it, I think, is a real key to success in any small business. Yeah, I agree. And with that, let's let's turn here to the to the lightning round. What's your favorite tool on the farm, Eric? I would say 
Well, I love, you know, just based on our conversation, uh, I think it's probably not a big surprise. I love my BCS with my power harrow. Um, allows me to turn over bed so quick and get that, that um, replanted. And so that's been a, a huge game changer with refreshing beds without, you know, bringing up all of new weed seeds and having to reweed on those beds constantly. So I love getting that thing out there and, and, and zip it across and just kind of stuffing up that top edge of soil and then having a nice seed bed to plant into. But yeah, I love that. I mean, it's like, I don't know if I'm allowed to have two favorite tools, but um, our, our green harvester um, was, is, was such a, a game changer for us a couple of years ago when we went to the, the quick cut green harvester, the drill powered um, uh, harvester. This is that one that, that Johnny sells that has the that has the ropes that are rotating, right? Yeah. Kind of brushing brushing the greens back in. Yep. Yeah. I don't think they're selling it anymore. I think you can only get it direct from um, the guy that makes it. But yeah, it's, oh. that, that's the one. And uh, you know where we went from harvesting with scissors or knives or um, you know that sort of thing to going to to that has just been such a, a labor saver for us. Um, and you know what took you know a couple people. A couple hours, we're talking, you know, it takes one person 20 minutes now. So um, from trying to always get a little bit quicker and, and more efficient, that that was a huge, a huge um, jump for us. Just because you're farming in the desert, what's the weirdest thing that's happened on your farm? What's the weirdest thing? Let's see here. It's not one thing, but I would say probably for, for the listeners, this is probably a very foreign thing for uh, what we have to deal with on a daily basis. And that is, um, you know, we're, um, a, a lot of farms probably have like animal pressures, um, you know, whether it's deer or rabbits or whatever, uh, and insect pressure, I would say, you know, the people, people pressure is probably one of our, our biggest challenges, mainly photographers and coming through and wanting to capture, uh, the agrarian lifestyle. So we're always trying to keep photographers out of the fields and orchards as opposed to, animals so they're, they're definitely more of a, a challenge than, than animals for us so kind of crazy does does electric fence work for photographers it, i mean it does for sure yeah we, we do put them up and we put some some signs uh trying to keep people out we've actually joked around and maybe one of these days we'll get around to putting some fake uh or not fake but just empty bee um you know beehive boxes in different places around the, the farm and 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 put big signs on them so they'd be afraid to go in there. But uh, we, have, we haven't gone that way yet. So, so you're farming in Arizona. Um, well, and I and I farming in Arizona is not so weird. I mean, that's that's actually a place where a lot of vegetables are grown. But but certainly in your area and doing your type of farming, I I don't think of Phoenix, Arizona, as being a, a hotbed of that kind of activity. Where mm-hmm. do you where do you turn uh, to learn to grow vegetables in the desert? Ah, that's a good question. I mean, there's not really a lot of resources out there. Um, all the extension offices and that in Arizona are kind of all geared towards, you know, your commodity crops and that sort of thing. And so um, Arizona is kind of slow to come around to embracing the, the small, you know, small scale diversified farming and the support system. So, um we, I mean, mostly trial and error, um, and then we we you know utilize social media a lot to kind of um, to kind of 
learned some things. There's some great uh, Facebook uh, groups for the industry and different kind of topics out there that I learned a ton from. And, you know, it's an open format where people are asking questions or giving suggestions. And so that's been helpful. But I don't know that I have anything that's specific to the desert um, and how that benefits us. It's just been kind of trial and error, honestly. And what's your favorite crop to grow? We know it's not the dates. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, I would say that either carrots or cauliflower, but let's say carrots. Um, you know, we have super heavy, you know, soil, like really just all clay. And, but somehow, um, we, we grow some beautiful, you know, nice straight carrots that are just so sweet. And I think I love what the carrots, uh, specifically because I feel like everybody loves carrots. And so to go to market and have, you know, bunches of, you know, baby rainbow carrots or whatever, and all ages can, um, you know, buy a bunch of carrots and eat one right there is, is, it's pretty satisfying to, to see people, uh, enjoy, uh, or get that kind of reaction from what you've been working hard to grow. And any, any great tips about growing carrots? Uh, I don't have any great, I mean, I, I, I don't know. We're, we're just fortunate. I mean, we try to keep the soil loose, a lot of, a lot of broad forking and, and that. And, um, I don't know. I don't have any tips, sadly. Um, okay. One that I've had a couple of requests from people to, to start asking as part of the lightning round, what change are you planning for next year? What's, what's one thing that you're going to do differently in the next growing season? Sure. Um, I mean, we're trying to, get to having all all fields in full production um and so where we were doing kind of rotating of of the fields with the seasons and doing our crop rotation that way we're we're trying to again increase um some of our production with um by having all fields in production and then doing those rotations a little bit more fine-tuned within the beds and running um those uh, those cover crops in the, the bed specifically. So um, that is that is the goal to just have more more intensity with our growing. Um, so by the end of the summer, that's the goal with that. Um, and we're also considering trying growing some dryland rice um, just as an experiment. So that's going to be something that might be interesting for this year, and just growing it in beds with drip irrigation the same way, and uh, a lot of new cool research coming out as far as being able to dry, uh, grow dry land rice with minimal water. Um, and so we're kind of curious. There's been some good things happening in Texas with that. So we thought we'd try that. And so and get some help from uh, Anson Mills and, and trying to experiment with that a little bit. That's really cool. And I guess, I guess because because growing medjool dates wasn't cool enough, you have to go in and grow the rice too. Huh? <laughs> Why not? I like to do things. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought of another thing that's interesting that we grew. Um, uh, we did hops for the first time this year as an experiment with a brewery. Um, you know, because they say you can't grow hops in the Phoenix Valley, and so uh, we partnered up with one of our local brewery customers, and we grew grew hops, and they were able to, you know grew some pretty awesome beer with it. So I think I don't know those things that just kind of odd. So, Fantastic. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Is that something you're going to be expanding on in the future? I think so. Um, there's a lot of, 
with some of the construction, with kind of the developing the last pieces around the farm, there's a lot of things going on. And so I think it makes it challenging now. So we might take this season off from expanding that. But then, uh, again, with kind of being suburban or more urban, we're trying to figure out ways to utilize all those margins, all that kind of dead space. So we'll grow them on the, the fence lines and things like that to, to, to utilize what would have been just kind of dead space. And so, yeah, I think we'll keep, now that we know that it worked, we'll keep trying to uh, pushing that a little bit further and further. Very cool. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Let's see. I would probably tell myself uh, to cast my dreams. Uh, um, when I started, um, I just wanted to, and I think probably a lot of farmers struggle with this wanting to do everything. And so, you know, we're doing hundred different vegetables at a time and we're doing 18 varieties of citrus and peaches and apples and the jewel dates and, you know, chickens for eggs and meat and, you know, on and on and on. Uh, we started growing, uh, we had some extra land available. So we grew 10 acres of heirloom wheat and then we were going to mill, we bought a mill and we're going to mill it ourselves. And then we're going to bake our big bread ourselves. And, you know, I just started to like lose sight of everything we were doing and just, just spread so thin. And so I learned uh, that I just have to like focus on, on less and do those things better. And so I wish, I wish I wouldn't have chased so many different things early on and then just focused on, you know, the, the vegetables, uh, the orchards and, you know, and, and, you know, now we just use the livestock as, you know, obviously we get eggs and so on from it, but it also is benefiting, um, the labor, reducing labor in the orchards and, and inputs and that sort of thing. So it works together, but that's enough. And we just want to focus on those things. Great. Thank you for that. Eric, thanks so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. This has been fantastic. No, it was my pleasure, Chris. I really, really want to say, like, appreciate what you're doing. Um, I listen all the time. Staff here listens all the time. And so uh, keep doing what you're doing. It, it's really, uh, it's really insp- you know, inspirational to have all these people come on and, and kind of share what they're what they have going on and what they're what they're doing so thank you so much thank you so much for being a part of it my pleasure all right so wrapping things up here i'll say again that this is episode 54 of the farmer to farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for schultz that's s-c-h-u-l-t-z I'm winding down my speaking season next week with a series of presentations at the Moses Organic Farming Conference, including my full-day organic university session, Manage Your Way to Farm Success. I hope to see you there. Please come up and say hi if you're around and you notice my name tag. If you enjoy the podcast, I'll bet you'd enjoy my weekly email newsletter too. It's called The Flying Rutabaga, and you can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on the book. Your reviews and referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. One more thing, I appreciate so much all the guest suggestions I received through the contact form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.